In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is one of, the, one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is the word of the Lord. A teacher and her first graders were looking at a picture of a family one day, and one little boy in the picture had a different hair color than the rest of the family. One child suggested that he was adopted. I know what it means to be adopted, said a little girl, because I am adopted. Well, what does it mean to be adopted, a little boy asked. It means, said the girl, that you grew in your mommy's heart and not in her tummy. Isn't that sweet? I love that. I think that's really great. And then there's the story of the little boy who's out in his backyard with a baseball and a bat. And he throws the baseball up in the air and he says, I'm the greatest hitter that ever was. And he takes a big mighty swing and he misses the ball. Well, feeling a little embarrassed, he picks up the ball again and throws it up in the air and says, I'm the greatest hitter that ever was. And he takes a mighty swing again and he misses. Well, he's totally dejected now, and so he just stands there for a minute. But then he gets an idea and he gets a big smile on his face and he says, I'm the best pitcher in the world. <laughs> well, often when life throws us a curveball, we may want to throw in the towel. We may want to walk away or just give up. But our faith calls upon us to see problems as opportunities. I want you to look right here at the floor and see the large frame that's staring at you uh, today. I know many of you are saying, what in the world is that? What is Kroll going to do this morning? It's our visual for the day. It's a frame. Yes, just a frame. But what I'm asking you to do today is what I think God has asked of us often in the Bible. They call for us many times in the Bible, the writers there, to repent. And today I'm going to talk about repentance in a different way, by reframing our problems or situations or dilemmas that we face. Now, Kim Fanter was here just two weeks ago. We always love when Kim comes because that's my wife Linda's cousin. So it's always a great thing to have her here. She came to speak about teen uh, parenting issues, so parenting teens. And she shared with me the night before uh, that she would be talking about the concept of reframing. And I said, hey, that's what my sermon's going to be about in a couple of weeks. So she said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you the story that I was going to tell tomorrow, that day, and I won't tell them so that you can have all the glory. I said, that's what I like. That's great. So she, she tells me this great story, and it's a story that's, that says, when a crisis happens in your life, you have many options. In fact, she says you have four options. You can be... A tree, a rock, an eagle, 
or a bobcat. She said, sometimes it's real important that we be a tree because a tree has 360 degrees all the way around that you can look at different sides of a problem. So sometimes it's really great to climb up in a tree and look around. Or sometimes it's important that we be a rock and lay low and quiet for a while, just as those high schoolers who had a shooter in their school needed to do. It was no time to bring attention to yourself, but stay still and quiet and lay low for a while. Or sometimes you need to be an eagle and fly overhead way up high and look down at the landscape. And often you see that your problem is not really as important as you think it is. And the other option, she said, is you have to be a bobcat sometimes. You have to fight. You've got to defend yourself. Four ways of dealing with life, all of which are ones that I've used before, haven't you? She went and told uh, an an example at the presentation, and she, she said that often it's said that teens are materialistic and self-centered. You've heard that before, have you not? And she said, it's important that we reframe that, okay? She said, teens are preoccupied with their own identity. And two, they are learning about their own self-worth. So, of course, you could say materialistic and self-centered, but it's actually something they're supposed to be doing as they learn more about themselves. Well, in the Old and New Testament is the word repent. And I was actually surprised how much that word appeared before Jesus came on the scene because I really had always associated the word repent with Jesus. In Matthew, our scripture for today, it says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And that is put in the mouth of John the Baptist. In the Gospel of Mark, it says, Repent and believe in the good news. And in Luke, it says, Unless you repent, you will all perish. I didn't want to go that route today. But in John, the word doesn't appear at all. Isn't that interesting? But for this Jewish Jesus, he was simply following what his tradition had passed down to him for centuries. The word repent is throughout the Old Testament. Eugene Boring's commentary on Matthew says that the meaning of repentance in Matthew is literally to change one's mind. But it carries with it its Hebrew counterpart to turn or return. It was, Professor Boring says, the standard prophetic and Jewish means of reconciliation with God. It's about changing the direction of one's life. And why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Fame Perkins wrote a good commentary on Mark and says that Mark's version of repent is more about returning to follow the Lord 
Change what you're doing right now and follow the Lord. Again, the prophets of old spoke of repentance as well. This is not a new concept. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, all all would speak of turning away from the evil or the bad things that you are doing and follow Yahweh. Well, Richard Beck is professor and department chair of psychology at Abilene Christian University. And Michelle Place emailed me an article he wrote recently that I really liked. He said, a few years ago, a female student wanted to visit with me about some difficulties that she was having, mainly with her family life. And as is my practice, we walked around the campus as we talked. And after talking for some time about her family situation, we turned to other areas of her life. And when she reached spiritual matters, she said, uh, I need to spend more time working on my relationship with God. And I responded, well, why would you want to do that? Well, startled, she said, well, what do you mean? Well, why would you want to spend any time at all working on your relationship with God? And she said, well, isn't that what I'm supposed to do? Well, let me answer by asking you a question. Can you think of anyone right now to whom you need to apologize? Anyone you've wronged? She thinks and answers, yes. Well, why don't you give them a call today and ask for their forgiveness? That might be a better use of your time than working on your relationship with God. Then Richard Beck made this statement. He said, The trouble with contemporary Christianity is that a massive bait and switch is going on. Christianity has essentially become a mechanism for allowing millions of people to replace being a decent human being with something else, an endorsed spiritual substitute. For example, rather than being a decent human being, The following is a list of some commonly acceptable substitutes. Going to church, worship, praying, spiritual disciplines, Bible study, all of which are good things to do. But the point is that one can fill a life full of spiritual activities without ever actually trying to become a more decent human being. Much of this activity can actually distract one from becoming a more decent human being. In fact, some of these, he says, are activities that make you worse, interpersonally speaking. He said, some Christians are jerks. Then he finishes by saying, I truly want people to spend more time working on their relationship with God. I just want them to do it by taking the time to care about the person standing right in front of them. Isn't that a profound statement? Rather than putting my relationship with God as number one in my life, he says, first take care of those persons that you've hurt or wronged. 
That's biblical, actually. Have you heard that before? person comes to the temple, uh, wants to come to the altar, and Jesus says, Have you any problems with a family member, a brother, or a sister? Go help them first before you come here. So he's really on to something, I think. It's really a way of reframing what we're really about in this life. To share compassion. To do and not just talk about doing. To give our lives in service. And the more we do that, according to Richard Keck, the closer we come to being in relationship with God. Did you ever happen to see the musical Cotton Patch Gospel? It is a hoot. The musical was a complete reframing of the story of Jesus. It was the first century brought to contemporary Gainesville, Georgia. The musical was written by Tom Keyes and Russell Trays, and the music was written by none other than Harry Chapin, you know, the guy who wrote Cats in the Cradle, W-O-L-D, that's my generation, uh, and Taxi, I love that song. He wrote this musical just before he died in an auto accident in 1981. But some of the retelling included Jesus Davidson, born not in Nazareth, but in the town of Gainesville, Georgia. He was laid, not in a manger, but in an apple crate. He was baptized, not in the Jordan, but in the Chattahoochee River. And the disciples were not Peter, James, and John, but had the names Rock and Andy, Phil and Nat. The big city of Atlanta, not Jerusalem, was where Jesus visited as a 12-year-old to attend not the temple, but the Sunday School Teachers Conference. And Atlanta is also where Jesus was not crucified, but lynched. And one of my favorite songs in that musical is the song about repentance. It's called Turn It Around, and here's how it goes. Now, you really need to slap your knee uh, when you do this because it's really a bluegrass kind of show. They have guitar and banjo and all that up there. But it goes like this. It goes, turn it around, turn it around. Surprise them a little, start shifting the ground To get right side up, turn upside down Now is the time to turn it around I thought it was a brilliant show A retelling of the gospel story in our language and our time And being from North Carolina myself, it made it even better Repentance or reframing or rebooting is all about that turning things around in your life to get a better perspective to get a kick in the behind to get your life moving again this reframing helps us see things differently it allows us to hear the same story that we've heard forever and ever in a fresh new way and often that makes all the difference. Humor is another way to reframe, is it not? There are moments when humor can turn things around. 
As many of you know, I love collecting epitaphs on tombstones, and I've had several of you send me some of those. I really appreciate that. Here are some of the latest that I've seen. Entertainer Merv Griffin on his says, I will not be right back after these messages. I like that. I'll not be right back. Then comedian Jackie Gleason. There's only one thing that he can put on his epitaph, and away we go. And the best that I found was from a guy down in Texas. He said, I'd rather be here than Lubbock. Yeah, isn't that great? <laughs> rather be here than Lubbock. I don't think any group of writers wrote a better comedy series on television than the creators of M.A.S.H. Many of the stories in the early seasons were based on real-life tales told by M.A.S.H. surgeons who were interviewed by the production team. The series was as much an allegory about the Vietnam War as it was about the Korean War. One minute you'd be laughing silly, and the next minute you'd be crying. Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds were brilliant in their writing of the scripts. And of course, Alan Alda, who played Hawkeye Pierce, and Gary Berghoff, who played Radar O'Reilly, and McLean Stevenson, who played Henry Blake, were just outstanding, too. They had a great way of making war look as miserable and horrible as it could, while at the same time making, it, making us laugh at the insanity of the situation that they found themselves in. They reframed war into stories of deep humanity and touching characters. Having a sense of humor is another asset for rebooting or reframing that can be a big help to us. Did you happen to catch the 60 Minutes program several weeks ago about the Khan Academy? Khan Academy, it's K-H-A-N. Well, it was incredible. The Khan Academy is a nonprofit organization with the goal of transforming education for the better by providing a free world-class education to anyone, anywhere. All of the site's resources are available to anyone, their website. It doesn't matter if you're a student, a teacher, a homeschooler, a principal, or an adult returning, returning to the classroom after 20 years, or even a friendly alien just trying to get a leg up in earthly biology. That's on their website, yeah. The Khan Academy's materials and resources are available completely free of charge. And how do they do it? Well, they only do their lessons in these 10 to 15 minute segments. The designer, a fellow by the name of Sal Khan, he was a brilliant man. He had like three degrees at MIT, another two from Harvard. I mean, just a brilliant guy. Uh, he was teaching his niece uh, how to do math equations. He lived on the East Coast, and she lived in Austin, Texas. And he figured out a way to do it that would be helpful. In very simple language, and with this special pen that could write on the computer, 
Uh, he walked his niece through the equation and helped her understand how to solve it. And he filmed himself doing this and put it on, like, YouTube uh, out there on the website. Well, that led Sal Khan to tackle not only math, but science and history, finance and economics, and even helping folks out with the SAT. Over time, his small Khan Academy got the attention of Bill Gates. Yeah, that Bill Gates, uh, who used the website to help his children with their homework and studies. And he wound up providing Sal Khan with $15 million to build their site and bring education to anyone on the planet with access to a computer, all free of charge. Think of it. Someone in Nigeria can access this web website and learn about math and science, history, even American civics. It is a way that change happens. It is a way that transformation happens by reframing how education can be done in the world. Jesus taught us how to reframe our lives. But even more important than that, God has been reframed through Jesus. He showed us how to look at people we think are of no value and see a human being, see a child of God. If someone forgives you seven times, you forgive them 70 times seven. He showed us how love reframes hatred. He showed us how community reframes isolation and loneliness. Jesus reframed the great God, Yahweh, the Aye Asher Aye, the I am who I am for us, showing us a God of compassion. And through the parable, like the parable of the prodigal son, we see a God who cares about us so much that he is like a father who throws a party for a lost child. Jesus showed us a God who even reframed death. It's not a dead end, so to speak. It's just a beginning of a new way of life. Repent says John the Baptist, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It has been near to us for a long time. And what does that mean for you and for me? Well, you can turn your life around. I don't care if you think that the world has come to an end and there's no tomorrow. That's not the way God looks at things. Maybe you need to be a tree or a rock or an eagle or a bobcat to deal with your life situation right now. You can turn your life around and get a better perspective and be the person you want to be. Whatever things look like right now, dark and bleak, hopeless 
Well, give God a chance and allow him to bring you home again.